0: I'm glad that you're here this morning and uh, really, really excited about what God's going to speak. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, you can raise your hand right quick. My name is Pastor Craig. If I hadn't had the opportunity to meet you, I certainly would love to do so right at the end of this gathering. And uh, we're really, really excited about beginning a brand new message series uh, this morning. And uh, many of you saw, the, uh, you saw the video there of our recap last Sunday. How many of y'all enjoyed kickball? That was pretty fun. Okay, that was really weak. How many of you really enjoyed kickball? Yeah, kickball was fun. Uh, I couldn't walk for uh, until yesterday, but no, I'm just kidding. But it has been a crazy, crazy week, and, uh, but I'm just excited to be together on Sunday. It's always such a privilege to preach God's Word and teach God's Word, but a double honor to preach it at home, and uh, Dwelling Place, of course, is home. If you've got a Bible, I want you to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to begin in just a few moments. I do want to welcome those that are streaming live with us this morning. I joined this church, my wife and I, two years ago, which seems, to be honest with you, like a long time ago. It was August 9th of 2015 when we relaunched Dwelling Place Church right here in this building. It was one of the craziest situations. My wife and I were completely convinced that God had called us to plant a church. We knew that. We had looked on multiple contexts and multiple occasions at different cities. My wife and I knew that years and years back and um, our logic was, you know what, God and lost people live anywhere, so I want we live where we really want to live. You know what I'm saying? And God uh, made it abundantly clear, and that remarkably clear, that Atlanta was where we were supposed to be. It's a crazy circumstance of how it came about, but we were at my house one night in Cleveland, Tennessee, and Chad was in town uh, sharing uh, at some labs that we do, training discipleship labs, and he came in from the conversation or came in on the conversation of my wife and I while we were sitting downstairs talking about church planning and uh and it was kind of fun because from there we just started pursuing and dreaming of this could this really be a possibility we knew both of us God had called us to lead a church planning movement now since that time we've grown passionately committed to Atlanta we've always loved Atlanta we feel like it's one of the most best and strategic cities in the world I'm not alone by that In fact, stats say it's one of the best and most strategic cities in the world. According to the recent stat, Atlanta is the fastest-growing city in America. It was just projected just last month over the United Nations Census study to be the fastest-growing large city over the next 15 years. There's 5.5 million people. If traffic doesn't catch up, they're estimating 9.5 million people by 2040. It is a strategic city globally. It is a strategic city where God has us. Really, really strategic. It's been a crazy journey these last two years. Uh, two years ago, when our leadership team gathered together from the church that was pre-existing to get ready, our core team consisted of about 30 people. That thir- those 30 people covenanted together to say, you know what? What can we do in, in, in whatever God has called us to do to reach lost people and see them discipled? And we were gonna put aside our comfort and put aside our preference to second place. And shortly after that, God brought forth people and we launched in this building and and God has brought forth forth people from really all ages of life, you know? Uh, I've told this before, but, you know, we had one college student show up and then we had five college students show up and then about 15 college students show up because college students travel in herds, you know what I'm saying? And so we grew by 15 people and our monthly giving went up $12.46, okay? And so, uh, you know what that's like in college ministry, but the college started growing, right? And then after the college started growing, we started reaching families, and that's the goal we wanted to reach of all generations. We want to be a multi-generational church. And we believe that we're just at the beginning, folks. I hope you do not look at this room today and think that by faith, this is where we're at, and this is where we are going to be. I have sense God doing something very unique and very strategic in my life and leadership, and particularly for this church. And so somewhere around 185 of us gather each weekend with a community of about 300 people. About 300 total people that are pastored. So what I want to do over the next five weeks, it's five weeks in the month of July, is I want to spend time, along with Pastor Chad, talking about where we are going as a community. Where God is leading us as a church, not just the local church, but also dwelling place, church planting movement. Because God has blessed us, amen? God has blessed us dwelling place and what God is doing in us is great. And what we're going to do is ask the question of why has God blessed us and what does he intend for us to do with that blessing? And what I want to do today to you is I want to present you with that same question personally. Over the next few weeks, you're going to hear me say it over and over again. Where has God blessed you and what does he intend for you to do with that blessing? Where has God blessed you? Where has he given you his blessing? grace and the measure of grace. We're going to look through the life of Abraham, one of the most important figures in human history. Now, it's hard to overestimate Abraham's significance in human civilization. I want you to think about this for a minute. Three major faiths, which together account for more than three and a half billion people on the planet, that's more than half of the world's population, all claim Abraham as their father. Now, if you're in the room today and you're an unbeliever, that's awesome. We love that. You don't even have to be a believer to study Abraham. Abraham is the father of a half of the entire world's human civilization. He's the father of it. It's pretty amazing. Three and a half billion people, three major faiths, all looking at Abraham as their father. Personally, I love the story of Abraham because life didn't just happen to him. Abraham happened to life. I like those kind of people. I like the people that they happen to life. They, they don't just go with the flow. They understand that God has called them. He stood against his family. He stood against society. He stood against that which was clearly uh, valuable to him. And he redefined the future for all of us. I like people like that. I really like people like that. Abraham was a man who multiplied. Everybody say multiply. He multiplied his life. And he gives us a picture of how God wants to use each of us in the world. But when his story starts... He's got nothing. Abraham's got nothing. There's a little tragic irony that the writer sets the story up. Abram's name literally means father. But he's 75 when the story opens and he has no kids. All right? Later on, his name changes to Abraham because God puts the... The Yahweh, part of his, the breath of God, it was like God was animating him. We could say that Abram's kind of like the first one filled with this Holy Spirit. That's what God did when he changed his name. He took part of his name, Yahweh, and he changed to Abram Ham. But Abraham means the father of many. In other words, Abram means daddy. Abraham means big daddy. But he ain't got no kids. He ain't got no kids. Anybody ever been there before? Received the promise of God and God waits three decades to be good on his promise? Abram becomes Abraham. His life is like a cruel joke. He seems to have this destiny of the father of all these nations, three and a half billion people written into him, but he's nearing the end of his life and he's got nothing. It's like life is mocking this man. Life is mocking. I want to convince you today, most of you in this room are probably in the same spot as Abram. God has destined your life for eternal significance. God has destined your life for complete Uh, utter life change in the lives of so many in future generations should the Lord tarry God God has destined your life oh yeah it may not be written into your physical name but it's written into your heart it's written into the DNA of who God's called you to but many of you look around and you don't see it happening yet many of you look around and you see that what's around you is not matching up to the dream and the destiny and desire and eternal significance God has put Within you. So what Abraham's going to have to do is he's going to have to walk a path. He's going to have to walk a path towards significance and multiplication. And the reason we're going to follow this path, Genesis 12 through 22, over the next five weeks, is because it's the same path you're going to have to walk. Whether you're young, whether you're middle-aged, or you're older you got to walk this path. Now, some of you, you really yearn for this. You really do. I know you do. I know you do. You don't want your life to amount to nothing. I know you do. I hear your heart. You don't want to say, man, my life just is about recycling and paying bills and saving up 401K and retiring. and spend. You don't want life to be that way. You want your life to count. you got one chance. You want your life to count for eternity. You do. Which brings me, over the years, one of my favorite stories has been the account of the crazy flight of Larry Walter's. Show you a picture of Larry Walters. Anybody remember Larry Walters? He lived in California. He went one day to the used Army and Navy store to to buy 75 used weather balloons. Do you remember this story? This is not fact. This is not fiction. This is true. 75 weather balloons. So he could, in his journal, I read it this week, observe the neighborhood from a slightly different perspective. That was his goal. On that fateful day, he got in his lawn chair, tied to 75 weather balloons, and he, with the help of his friends, unties the ropes. He takes with him three things, a six-pack of beer, a BB gun, and peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's what he takes. He's sitting in his lawn chair. They call him Lawn Chair Larry. Two and a half, year, two and a half hours later, Los Angeles International LAX Airport reports an unidentified object at fifty-four, five hundred and forty-seven feet in the air. He's three hours, or 300 miles from where he began his journey in his front yard. He intended, after he lands and they rescue him, he said in his journal to the reporters, he intended to go to a nice altitude very slowly. He would take out his BB gun and shoot balloons. And so he wouldn't go too high, he would shoot balloons, and then when he would level out, if he started going higher again, he would shoot another balloon. Okay, what could possibly go wrong with that plan right I mean that sounds like a great plan and so here he is with 75 weather balloons and and uh, his friends say when they untied him it looked like he got shot out of a cannon they said it didn't go up slowly at all they untied the ropes and he went shoo, straight up in the air and he's in this lawn chair with a six pack of beer with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he's he's hanging out you know I mean a bb gun and so he's so afraid when he gets shot off like a cannon, he didn't want to shoot the balloons. So he did what the only thing he knew to do in a stressful situation, so he drank beer. And so he laid back in the lawn chair and started drinking beer, to which he passes out. LAXM, the, the, uh, the pilot who calls him in, the Boeing 747, he calls him in and says, um, it looks like a chair, a lawn chair. I think it's a lawn chair. So they pull off a rescue operation that would have made Chuck Norris jealous. And they go up in the air with two helicopters, and they grab a rope and lasso this dude to safety. They bring him down on the tarmac. They lay him down. They revive him because he's completely passed out at 12,500 feet. I mean, it's pretty cold up there, too. They revive him. He wakes up. The first people that meet him are the cops, and they give him a ticket for $4,000 for obstructing uh, airspace for the airplanes. And uh, he later had a plea bargain, got it to $1,500. That's pretty cool. But the second people who come to him were the reporters. And the reporters come to him, and they ask him three questions. They say, Larry, were you scared? He said, yes. Yes, I was scared. I was really scared. They said, Larry, would you ever do it again? He said, no, I would never do it again. They said, Larry, why'd you do it? In his journal, he said, you know what? I just got tired of always sitting around. Most Americans I meet, they just are getting tired of sitting around. Most people attend churches that I go to, they're just getting tired of just sitting in a pew and sitting in a chair. Not being involved in the multiplication of God's kingdom. Just coming and listening to messages. I think most people in our country are not, are not uh, they're more bored and disillusioned than they are even disappointed. They just get tired of sitting around. And so this sentiment has captured, I think, the heart of so many. In Genesis chapter 12, would you read with me? I'm going to read three verses of Scripture. People always start Abram's story in Genesis 12, but it really begins in Genesis 11. So let me just give you a recap of Genesis 11. Genesis 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody say Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel was a project that symbolized humanity's rejection of God. Listen, we celebrate the Declaration of Independence this Tuesday. Babel was humanity's Declaration of Independence from God. It was the first 4th of July. It was, a, it was a declaration of independence, and it was, therefore, a, a, a humanity's plea to say we want the wholesale worship of idols. This is a very dark age, Genesis 11, spiritually, and it was already a dark age in Genesis 6 when he destroyed the whole world. It took five more chapters, and the world's dark again. Genesis chapter 11, the, the, there's one family line. I'm ready to say one. Only one family line belongs to God. It's the descendants of a man named Shem. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three sons of Noah. Shem is the only godly family left. But at the end of chapter 11, they live in a place of idolatry called Ur, You are. They're almost swallowed up by idolatry. The final line or final guy of the godly lineage of Adam is a guy named Terah. T-E-R-A-H. Terah has one son named Abram. Abram's childless... It looks like the end. You need to understand how Genesis 12 opens up. Terah's name in Hebrew means moon, which was a Hebrew metaphor for the moon, uh, or for the end. Like It was like us saying on the train, that's the caboose. So furthermore, in Ur, which is where they live, the people worship the moon. So the fact that Terah's name moon means his family had succumbed to the idolatrous culture, and they had become idolaters themselves. So as Genesis chapter 11 ends, God's only hope, the last candle of humanity, is flickering out. There's only one family left on earth that follows his lineage and they seem to be capitulating to idolatry. They seem to be in the land of Ur giving it all over again and losing the whole farm. The darkness is about to completely swallow up the light. Now Genesis 12.1 makes a little bit more sense. But the Lord said to Abram, the last one, childless... Leave your native country, leave your relatives, and leave your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Catch this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you catch that? In the midst of this great darkness, God calls a man who barely knows who God is, and one who is childless to boot, and tells him he's going to make from him a great nation of people who will worship and follow God And bless the whole earth with the knowledge of Almighty God. Now, listen, to make a long story short, Genesis 12 1 is a promise that you and I inherited. You see, to make a long story short, one of Abraham's descendants was a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the God man. Can I sum up the entire Old Testament in one sentence? I put it on your card. A descendant of Abraham was Christ. And in Christ, God offered salvation to the whole world. And we who are in Christ are now commissioned to bless the world by taking the news about Jesus to all the families in the world. That is the blessing of Abraham ultimately being fulfilled with the covenant Jesus makes. You see, it's interesting. In Matthew's gospel, everybody say Matthew. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission, which we are to make disciples of all nations, taking this message to the ends of the earth. Isn't it amazing that Matthew's gospel, you ready, traces chapter 1, the lineage of Abraham to Jesus. What are you saying, Craig? The Great Commission is an extension of the promise to Abraham. That's all the Great Commission is. It's just an extension to Genesis 12:1. So, Abraham's promise, in other words, becomes our promise, his command becomes our command, and his experience serves as a model for our experience today. Now, Abram's call presents to us three questions we need to ask ourselves. You ready? Here's the quest- first question you've got to ask yourself Am I really following God? Am I really following God? Not am I a believer. Am I really following God? This is a question about who's really in charge of your life. Is it you or is it God? Is God simply an influence in your life or does God own your life? That's the question. We've talked about it here before about offering a blank check to God. You sign the line below and you don't even know what it's written to. You sign the blank check, no restrictions, no limitations, all I am God, all I ever hope to be, all I ever dream to be, I offer without reservation to you God. Here's the way I've always said it, you put your yes on the table and you let God put it on the map. That's why we just sang the song, I say yes Lord. You say yes long before he tells you where. This is going to be a challenging series, I'll just go ahead and tell you okay. It's going to be there, but this this is Abram, this is what it takes for multiplication. You say Yes. And then he puts your yes on the map. He puts your yes in the city. He puts your yes in a country. This is what God asks of us. Now his command, if you'll catch this, is intentionally open-ended. God's command to him is, go to the land that I will show you later. Uh, God said, Abraham, go. And he's like, where are we going? Uh, I'll show you later. I'll tell you about that later. Just go. What do you mean, God? You said, I have a son. I'm 75 years old. My wife's 60. We're barren. What do you mean? I'll tell you about that later. Just go. In other words, I just want you to follow me. I'll take care of that, but you got to follow after me. I love how the reformers, they summarize God's call to Abram here. You know what they said? This is what they said. They said, God said to Abram, just close your eyes and take my hand. Oh, I love that. Just close your eyes and take my hand. That's how the reformer summed up God's response to Abraham. Just close your eyes and take my hand. I love that statement. But God, what about, what about, what about, how about, how, how and God says, no, no, no. Just close your eyes and take my hand. Listen, church, I see so many people who are unwilling to do this. I see more people unwilling to do this than are willing to do this. Like when God starts moving in your life, like he's moving right now, When God starts moving in our church, when things start stirring, when God, when people say, I'm gonna consider following God, they want to know, well, God, when I surrender everything to you, where are you gonna make me go? Do I have to become a missionary? Do I have to change careers? Do I gotta change jobs? Do I have to to make to break up with my boyfriend? Will my relationships be changed? What if you tell me to change some part of my life that I don't know how to change yet? What if you ask something of me that I'm scared to give? God, am I going to become one of those annoying people who put bumper stickers on their car and tells everybody have a blessed day every day? God, am I going to become one of those self-righteous people that it, they, they, who corrects the store clerks at Christmas time who say, Happy Holidays, and I say, Merry Christmas? God, I don't want to be those, those people. I don't want to be them. And listen, For the first 10 years of ministry, I used to try to answer those questions for people, but I stopped. You know why I stopped? Because I realized that that's just people wanting to know exactly where God's going to take them before they agree to follow him, and he don't do, and he don't work that way. They just want to know where God's going to ask them. They just want agreement about the destination long before they say yes to who he is. They want to follow God without getting out of the driver's seat of their life, and that, my friends, is a biblical impossibility. If you want to just go to church and have a good life, then that's cool. But if you want to make eternal significance and be multiplied for the Kingdom of God. You've got to get up out of the driver's seat and let the King of Kings and Lord of Lords lead your life. He doesn't lead any other way. God doesn't come to you and serve as an onboard navigation system whose suggestions in Siri you can take or leave as you choose. That would be cool if God was that way, but He's not. And when you choose a different way, He'll just say, recalculate. No, He don't work that way. He's the new car owner. And you're in the back trunk, trying to be resuscitated on a gurney, trying to live and breathe, and He's leading and guiding you. This is who God is. God, Mission Church doesn't come to give you suggestions and then recalculate based on your response. That's not our God. He comes for total surrender. He comes for total abandonment. See, we want to know the what, the where, and the how of God's will, and He says, all you need to know is the who. It's me. You're gonna follow me. Just close my eyes, dwelling, close your eyes, dwelling place, and take me by the hand. Let me point out one other thing before I go to number two, because uh, I I came to this. I realized this week, and it was kind of late to put it in the card, but I came to something. This is, a, this is a calling that Abraham, when I was studying this week, had to respond to personally. Everybody say personally. Now, what do you mean, Craig? In my study this time, I learned something I'd never seen before. Chapter 11 ended with Abraham's whole family leaving Ur to go to Canaan. So it was actually Terah that got the family out of Ur. But they get halfway to a place called Aran, and they settle. And they're settling there. And so chapter 12, God is saying to Abraham, hey, you've come out half of, half of the way I asked you, but, but I want you to come out the rest of the way. And Abram's like, I don't, I don't want to go any further. The rest of the family's comfortable here. Let me transliterate the Hebrew, chapter, Hebrew Bible in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse one. You ready? This is what God says to him. Then go yourself out. That's what he's saying to Abram. Your family stayed there. They want to stay there, but you leave your family. You go yourself out. In other words, Get out yourself, is what we would say. You've got to leave. The point is this. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision to follow God. It's not enough to be in a Christian movement. It's not enough to be in a Christian church. It's not enough to be in a Christian family. You've got to make a personal decision that you are going to follow Jesus. Here at Dwelling Place, we're trying to do a lot in God's mission with what we have. We are. We really are. My question for you today is, are you personally part of it? Are you personally part of it? I was talking to people over the last few weeks, and I think honestly, but getting a feel from our church, people are it, just asking questions reveals something very encouraging to me. A lot of people are really excited about what we are doing as a church. Here's what was less than encouraging: not nearly as many people are engaged in what we're doing as a church. Can I just say something? People hear videos, they hear life story change. We talk about life change, and and they hear Pastor Chad talk and hear me talking. They're like, "Woohoo! I love to hear stories of families being changed." Yeah. Mission trips, volunteering, connect groups. I I sure hope people keep doing that so we can keep these stories coming on Sundays. I hope they do that. Listen to me. You can't piggyback on the engagement of somebody else's mission. Are you with me? You cannot piggyback on a Christian movement. You have to be involved yourself. you got to get your hands involved. you got to engage your heart and say, Lord, I want to be used. God does not reward us for associating with the right church. God does not reward us for associating with the right movement. He rewards us based on what we do with our hands. What we do with our feet. What we do in getting our hearts engaged in the mission of God. Movements by definition move. And if you aren't moving, you can sit here every week, but you're not a part of the movement. And God's saying, dwelling place, I have a church planning movement in front of you. I have a movement awaiting. How will you get your hands involved? How will you get your feet involved? Which leads me to the second question. Where is my security? Where is my security? That's the question Abraham is being asked. Where's my security? God wasn't calling Abraham to make God a part of his life or add a few tweaks to his morality. You no, know, he was calling him to a whole new basis of life. He was calling him to a whole new security in life. Now, in those days, the family land and family connections were everything. What did God ask him to leave? Family connections and Land. Okay, it was everything for him. This is the equivalent of God coming to us and saying, walk away from your career and everything you own. That's hard, y'all. Can we just admit that's hard? This is the call of Abram. Leave everything that's dear to you, all your family connections, all that you own, and leave. I'm gonna ask you today, church, are you willing to put everything on the table? If we do, I cannot imagine the multiply of thousands of people that would be water baptized, families that would be changed, drug addicts that would be born again, <laughs> deliverance that will take place in this community and communities around the world. But it takes people who are willing to put everything on the table. Say, God, I want to surrender everything to you. God, I'm giving it all to you, even the most precious things to you. I never forget when I was uh, at a church called Free Chapel, I was preaching, uh, I went into a, a, a Chick-fil-A on Monday Mill Road one day, it was a, it was a Wednesday morning, I went in and I uh, met this girl that was checking me out, her name was Angelica Monego, and she was by, behind the, the, the desk there, cashier, and, uh, help me, <laughs> I'm like, trying to think, and so, I'm, I'm looking at this girl who works at, at Chick-fil-A, and uh, i yeah, come on, brother, and I'm, I'm looking at her, and I'm like, hey, you should come to the turn on Thursday night as a college ministry, i I, uh, I pastored at the time, and she ended up coming. She, she walked in, and how many of y'all know when you go into those services, those gatherings where you have a holy, um, a holy Spirit-sized grenade that just drops right in your lap and blows you up? You ever been in those type of sermons, and everybody else is like, just listen to the sermon, and you're like, <laughs> 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 you know what I'm talking about? And she was in there, and the Holy Spirit blew her up, I mean, sincerely, and, I mean, just blew her up. Did you know a week later, I went back into the, to the Chick-fil-A and I said, Angelica, what happened? She said, you know what? The other night in the message, God called me to Switzerland. I've sold my stuff, my possessions. I got it ready to go. And this Saturday, I leave to Switzerland and she became a missionary in Switzerland. <laughs> Folks, that's just putting everything on the table. That's just putting everything on the table and saying, God, I'm really ready to surrender everything. Lord, where is my security? Where deeply is my security in life? Here's the sure one way you know What part of your life you don't trust God in? You ready? It's the place you don't offer him unconditional obedience. It's the one where you say, you can't talk about that, God. You can't talk about that. You can't talk about that. You cannot talk about, you cannot talk about that. And guess what? Within a matter of days, God will start talking about that. Part of your life that you offer him unconditional obedience, don't offer him unconditional obedience, is the place you don't obey God in that area. It's where you say to God, not this, not this. Here's the third question. Have I offered my blessing back to God to be multiplied for his kingdom? Uh, let, me, let me put it personally. Have you offered your blessing back to God to be multiplied for his kingdom? Listen to me. Becoming a Christ follower means viewing everything in your life as something to be multiplied for God's kingdom. Did you hear Pastor Chad in the offering? Everything in your life is to be multiplied by God's kingdom. The key passage for the next few weeks, you're gonna see me visit over and over, 2 Corinthians 9 and 10. I want you to read it with me because we're gonna go over it multiple times. I want you to read this. He who supplies seed to the sower will supply and multiply your seed for what? Sowing. Question, pause. Why has God multiplied and increased your seed? For one reason, what is it? Sowing. The only reason God multiplies your seed, increases your seed, is for sowing. That's why God, God increases your capacity to share the gospel with the rest of the world. That's why God increases you. God increases your seed for sowing. You see, becoming a Christ follower means a fundamental reshaping of your life. You look at everything you've been given as a seed for sowing. Everybody say a seed. Now, there's two things you can do with a seed. You ready? Two things you can do with a seed. You can grind up a seed and create bread or grain. You eat the seed. The second thing you can do with the seed, you know what it is? You plant it. You can grind up seed for food and bread, or you can plant it in the ground to multiply not only to feed you but everybody around you. There's two things you can do with seed. Eat it, grind it, eat it, or plant it to be multiplied. Listen to me. God is wanting to increase our capacity. Do you know this church? Do you know this? God wants to increase our capacity and influence in this city. God wants to increase our capacity and influence why for us? No, for his kingdom. He wants to in the nations. Why? Cuz God hasn't blessed you and increased you so you can increase your standard of living. God has blessed you and increased you so you can increase your standard of giving. You can increase your standard of sowing and giving into the kingdom of God. Listen church, God is a rich giver and he loves. He's a good father who loves for you to uh, he loves give good gifts to his children. He wants you to enjoy him, but he doesn't just give you blessings simply for us to enjoy them. He does not want you to eat your seed. He wants you to plant your seed. He does not want you to grind up your seed into a grain. He wants you to plant your seed. He blesses us so that we can offer blessings back to God so that he can multiply those blessings in the lives of others. Now, some of you are saying, well, Craig, I don't feel very blessed. My life's been hard. My life's been very difficult. I understand that. But listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me closely. No matter who you are in this room, no matter who, no matter what season God has put you in, God has given you things in your life to be multiplied for his kingdom. Every one of us. What do you mean, Craig? Yep. Remember when Jesus sat across in the temple treasury one day and he observed the woman coming in with two mites? Remember the two mites that gave all she had? You know what two mites are? That's two-eighths of a penny. Two-eighths of a penny. And the Bible says when she came and dropped it the temple treasury, she probably didn't feel financially blessed. Y'all think so? But the Bible says she, she gave more than everyone else. Jesus said because she took what God gave her and she allowed it to be multiplied. Listen to me, church. God does never call you to give what you don't have. But he does call you to give what you do have. And everybody has something in this room to be multiplied. And you're not always in charge of how your life is going. But you're called to take what you have and offer it to God. You mean God can use my pain? Oh, I bet he better be able to use my pain. I hope he can use my pain. I hope he can use my December, November, December, January of this last year as hell on earth. So, if God chooses to give you pain, here's what you do. You offer to him, and God says, You know what? I'll take your pain, and you can say, God, how can I use this testimony to give glory to you? God can multiply your pain for his kingdom. He can offer and multiply anything you put in front of his face. You know what being a Christian is about? It's saying, God, if you give me prosperity, I'll leverage my prosperity for the advancement of your kingdom. God, if you give me pain, I'll turn my pain into a testimony of your goodness and faithfulness in the worst situations in life. If you give, and I'm going through depression, God, I'll give you my depression, and you'll take my depression and multiply it to help people of your faithfulness. God, if you want, in other words, in the Christian life, nothing is wasted. There's not a thing you can go through that can be wasted, nothing. Everything you have and go through can be multiplied. By God. So here's what happens. When you sow in God's field. Go back to the verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. When you sow in God's field. Look what God does. He will. You will be enriched in every way. To be what folks? Generous in every way. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Are you serious? Did you catch that verse folks? When you begin to multiply. God uses you to bless others in a way that they think God because of you. <laughs> okay. That's, that's more exciting for me maybe than you. God says, when you are multiplied, other people thank God because of you. Who is in their house in Woodstock today that will thank God because of your multiplication? What tribe is in Africa today that will thank God one day in heaven because of your ability to surrender everything? Folks, we're so nearsighted. People will be coming to us eternity and say, thank you that you left everything. Thank you that you are willing to be multiplied. Thank you that you gave of your life. This is what it means to be multiplied. This last year, there were 16 people baptized in our church. I asked the Lord this next year to allow us to baptize 100 people. So we've been praying for the next last two months. 100 people I want to see baptized born again. That's what I want to see in this community this next year. God, you can blow that out of the water. I think of the Sardis. I think of the Henry and Adriana who's going to Los Angeles Dream Center with us tomorrow. And going to serve and be help be our Spanish translators in a remarkable way. But I look at this couple who started attending this church about a year ago and went through growth phases and now finished up formation phase and how God has radically transformed their entire family. I think of the Sardis. I I think of people in our community whose lives are being multiplied because others were willing to be multiplied. Because others are willing to lay down. Others are willing to surrender. I cannot wait till I walk into this pulpit or Pastor Chad walks into this pulpit years from now and he says, you know what? We planted 20 churches in the last six months that have baptized more than 500 people. I can't wait till someone gets up, a Trent gets up and says, you know what? We're sending another church to an unreached people group and in that unreached people group, there's no one there except us. I I, I really hear those things in my own heart and spirit. I hear those things. That's what I pray and contend for with faith. God, this is what you're calling us to, to be multiplied for your kingdom. So, God presents Abraham in with you with a very stark choice. You ready? Hold on to what you have, and you'll end up empty. Offer it without restriction to God, and you'll be filled, both you and the world around you. That's the question. For you, if you want to live a tidy, safe life without leaving your comfort zone, you're not going to be of much use to anybody. I didn't say you wouldn't make it to heaven, I just said you're not going to be of much use. But if you open your hands to all of it to God, he'll use it beyond your wildest expectations and multiply you for his kingdom. Amen, church. He will. So what are you gonna do in this series? Are you gonna say, God, I wanna let you have free reign to speak, or are you gonna walk out of here and close your heart to him? Dwelling place, I believe that we're gonna go through this month and it's gonna change us as a church. I think it's not only going to extend our impact in reaching our city, but I think it's going to change us as a people. I believe that with all my heart. We have a chance to revolutionize this city for the gospel and a chance for God to teach us what it really means for us to follow him with reckless abandon and make our lives eternally significant. We have that choice. So I want to challenge you with a couple of quick things and we're going to move on to the second part of follow in trust. So we talked about follow to trust. I want to challenge you. I know it's summer vacation. I know it's time. I know most people, there's a lot of people out today. understand that. We want it. We believe in families. We want you to take vacation if you have the resources and funding to do so. But we want you to do so. But I want to challenge you something. If you're here in the month of July, you're in this city, you're at home, I want to challenge you. I know how we do. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to judge you. I'm just telling you this is what we do in America. We come two or three weeks and then we miss a week. It's what we do and we come two or three weeks, I'm gonna challenge you over the next five weeks to be here every Sunday. You say, Craig, why? Because all the sermons are gonna be better than normal? No, because I think God is going to build in what he speaks to our congregation. And you can't get that on podcast, you can't get that on live stream. I think God is going, I think he's realigning our church right now. I do, I believe with all my heart he's realigning us for multiplication. So I wanna challenge you, if you're in town, be here each and every week. God is speaking to us. Are you willing to pray this prayer for the next five weeks? God, multiply me, I'm ready to follow. God, multiply me. I'm ready to follow. You know why we can do that, by the way? What Abraham was asked to do, and and Abraham did falteringly through ups and downs, Jesus would come one day and do perfectly perfectly. You know why we're able to do what Abraham did? Because Jesus would go out alone. He would leave his father's house. He would go to a place of real security and go into the unknown. And he did so gladly for you and I when he came to the earth. He became utterly homeless like Abraham. He became utterly fatherless so we could have a real home, a heavenly father. This is what Jesus did. And if you understand that the one who's calling you to follow is the one who left everything to follow or to follow or pursue you, then you'll leave everything to follow him. But you gotta understand that what he left for you to understand what he's asking you to leave. You can let go of your little securities for him because you have ultimate security in him. Did you hear me? ready? In Christ, I can let go of all that I have because in Christ, I have the promise of all that I'll need. That's why I can let go. Everything I need. Christ's sacrifice becomes my motivation to sacrifice for him. My security in him becomes my confidence to risk for him whatever he asks. I'm ready to risk. God, multiply me. I'm ready to follow. Go to the next chapter with me, Genesis. I want you to go just for a minute. It would be amazing. We're gonna talk about the second part, trust. It would be amazing if in that moment that after God spoke to Abram following, following God in Genesis 12 that, that Abram would have this un, unbroken string of obedience like a dazzling succession of faith victories. That's not the case. Can I, Just track with me a minute. Before he gets out of chapter 12, he's already given away the whole farm, folks. What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, Genesis 12, 10, look with me. Now there was a famine in the land where Abram was staying. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. So he had to go, he had to detour down to Egypt because that was the only place of food. Look at verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say this is his wife and then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister that my life may be spared for your sake. In other words, say you're my sister because Pharaoh's powerful and he wants to marry you and so if you'll say my sister, he'll still marry you, but he won't kill me. Y'all, what do you call this? A lack of faith, or the your answer to why should I be featured on the Jerry Springer show? I'm like, dear God. It's like Sarah, even though you're 70, you're still hot, and the Pharaoh's gonna want you. That's a that's a pretty bad 70-year-old. <laughs> hey, Pharaoh's gonna want you, and so just say you're my sister. Abram, do you not believe the God who promised to make you a great nation can keep the Egyptians from stealing your wife and killing you? I find great satisfaction in Abraham's story. It's strangely comforting to me because my life has hardly been an unbroken string of spiritual succession and victory. Mm It seems like every epoch of my life has been wavering faith. In high school, I couldn't be satisfied with God's opinion of me. I just had to try to prove myself to everybody else and it wore me out, even when I was a believer. In college, I wasn't content with God's timing. I wanted ministry right there. I wanted to get out into the world. I wanted it right then, right then. There's no need to give my mind to three years of education. When I first became a pastor, I wasn't content with the ministry assignment God gave me. I wanted the church to be bigger. I wanted to grow faster. I wanted to move forward. Every time of my life, I've always been like Abram. I've stumbled and fallen and disbelieved at every stage. Well, listen, I can count at least five instances where he pretty dramatically drops the ball. Does this give anybody hope? It's hope of me. Is it comforting to you? We have the scene in Genesis 12. He lied to, he lied to Pharaoh. That's drop the ball number one. We have the next one, in Genesis 16. We don't have time to turn there. He gets worried after a few years because God hadn't given him son. He's 25 to 30 years into this thing, so he follows Sarah's lead to sleep with Hagar, the house servant. Hagar gives birth to a son through him named Ishmael. Now, how do you think? Don't you think everybody says, hey, success, everyone's happy? no. Come on, guys, you think this would be good for your family? Think about it. You and your wife can't have kids, so one night in frustration, she gets mad at you, throws the kitchen table at you, says, why don't you go sleep with our maid? See if you can get her pregnant. You go get her pregnant, you think your wife's going to be happy next nine months? No, she's going to be ticked. And so what happens is Sarah gets mad, she starts abusing Hagar simply for doing what she told her to do. And what does Sarah do? Well, the spineless wonder that Abraham is, he says, you girls work that out. And he goes and watches Sports Center. right? And what does she do? She drives Hagar into the desert. That's a pretty big ball drop, Abraham. Pretty big ball drop, buddy. Genesis 17, God reappears to Abraham to renew his promise to give a son through Sarah, and Abraham laughs. The father of our faith scoffs at the face of Almighty. Ball drop number three. Finally, Genesis chapter 20, Abraham runs into another king who scares him, and so he lies again about Sarah being his sister so the king won't kill him and steal his wife. Now, that one's really weird because it brings us full circle back to the beginning. I was around a new believer a couple weeks ago, and he said, I was reading the life of Abraham, and he thought, man, did I get it out of order? I thought I already read this. And I said, no, you read it twice. The author Moses wants you to know that Abraham, it's almost like he didn't even get better his whole life. He failed God at the beginning. He failed God at the end. He made the same mistake at the end that he made at the beginning, but yet God was still faithful to this man. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. That gives me comfort. So here's what we learn. You ready? I've got to give them to you quickly. Here's what we learn. Number one, God grows our faith by testing it. God grows our faith by testing it. A faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Your, your faith will not be trusted if it can't be tested and gone through the fire with God. What do you say, Greg? Right? right after Abraham started following God, God caused the famine so that Abram would have to go to Egypt, a place where he's scared for his life. God was testing and trying to grow his faith. You see, we don't just make a one-time decision to follow God and move on. God's going to test and God's going to grow and God's going to stretch and God's going to grow your faith. Why? Because faith, Bethany, is our most important muscle. Faith, you see, by the way, works like a muscle. Did you know that you can only strengthen a muscle by straining the muscle? When you work and strain a muscle, how many work out in here? Anybody? You, were you working Where you work out? When you work and strain a muscle, you produce what uh, scientists tell us thousands of little tears in the muscle, and then it grows back stronger. That's called the science of exercise. That's exactly how God grows our faith. He puts us in a situation where he tears our muscles. He tears us down to where we can't stand up. He tears us down. He tears our muscles. He he exhausts us. He wears us out. He Pushes us to the brink. He tears us up. He tears us up inside. Why? Because he wants to build us back stronger. Y'all, I see this so happen regularly in people's life. I now tell people when they accept Christ, this is standard procedure. Give it three weeks and you're going to be asking the question, can God provide for me? You're going to be asking because he's going to make a situation for you where you're saying, God, can you, are you here? Are you going to provide for me now? I know people who upon getting serious about following God, they lost their job. It's like, God, is this how you reward me? No, God is just testing your faith. Or you ask, am I gonna be able to make it through this difficult season of my marriage, Pastor Craig? Or he'll allow people to turn on you. I've in ministry, I've had people turn on me. Turn on me right in ministry. Seems like every high school student I see come to know Christ. They come to Jesus, their friends turn on them. What's happening? Well, I just tell them as a youth pastor, behind that is God. God's right behind the rejection saying, Do you trust me more than these? That's all he's doing. When he takes someone close to you that betrays you, it's just God's invitation for greater intimacy. It's just for God to say, hey, do you trust me more than you trust humans? You trust me more than you trust the people around you? Faith is the most important muscle in the Christian life and God is committed to strengthening it. Faith is your core muscle. Faith is not just how you begin the Christian life. Faith is all of the Christian life, church. Faith is not the diving board by which you jump into the pool. Faith is the soil in which everything in the Christian life grows. I'm going to say it again. Which, by the way, is a great screensaver if you want it, too. It's on Facebook in that quote right there. Faith is not the diving board in which you jump into the full. Faith is the soil in which everything in the Christian life grows. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying this. Everything in the Christian life cannot grow unless it's in the soil of faith. It has to be in the soil of faith. Here's number two. In testing our faith, God often brings us to the very brink. Any amens here? Oh, heaven's help. God brings to the brink. What do you mean? God could have given Abram a son immediately, wouldn't he? But instead, he wanted to telephone him 25 years before he did. Folks, this is kind of cruel. Got a little beef with the Lord here. You'd have waited 25 years and told me I had a son. You could have given me a son immediately, right? Abram had already been in his 70s when he was told. Why wait so long to fulfill it, God? Why wait 30 years to fulfill a promise you gave me? Three decades, y'all. Well, let's go back to the illustration of a muscle. Workout specialists talk about something at Allen's theory called muscle failure. You know what muscle failure is? It's the only way to really strengthen a muscle. It's you push it so far until you it fails. You can't pick up anything. You can't pick up anything. You can't drive home. It's called muscle failure. When it muscle failure happens, your multi, your your muscles multiplying capacity like never before in your life. It's called muscle failure. So what happens is God does it to your faith. He gets you to faith failure, and then only can He multiply faith in you. He gets you to the brink, my God. He gets you to the place where you don't think you can move forward. You don't think that God's going to be faithful in His promise. You're totally laying line. Help us and says God. You know what? I want you to strengthen me. That's what God does to your faith. He's given. Ha, listen, had God given Abram a son immediately? It would have caused him to rejoice but not grow his faith. God don't want you just to rejoice. He wants your faith grown. Oh yeah, he wants your joy, but he wants your faith to increase. So when God promised you, he doesn't always act immediately on that promise. He wants faith to increase. He wants your trust in him to go out the roof. This is how God works with us. Abraham had to feel the hopelessness in the face of sterility. He had to look at his wife's face every night with tears in the tent, and she said, I can't have a kid. He had to feel it for 30 years, y'all. 30 years of barrenness. Abram had to feel it. He had to feel hopelessness in the face of Sarah's disappointment if he was to cast himself utterly in the arms of divine promises and really grow in his faith. My question for you, is God doing that with you right now? Is he pushing you to the brink? I mean, is he just pushing you to the brink? Listen, Listen, church, the way you become an Abraham is not pleasant. I love becoming an Abraham. God, Craig, I just, let's just hear sermons and go to connect groups. (laughs) You don't don't become an Abraham by listening to sermons and going connect groups. You know, he leads you through valleys so he can show you that he can provide for you right in the middle of the valley. He will send you into storms to show you that he walks on top of storms. He will. You want to be an Abraham? It's not pleasant. It's hard. It's difficult. We need more people in the church telling people it's He will surround you with conflicts and enemies so that he can show you. He can prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Our God puts you in the middle of every situation that you think you never belong in so that he can prove to you that you can cast yourself utterly on the arms of a sovereign, amazing, compassionate God. Listen to me, church. God is serious about teaching us faith. Because faith is not an addendum to the Christian life. It's all of the Christian life. Because listen, in order for you to multiply, you have to learn to exercise faith. Remember we saw the scripture just a minute ago. Paul compared everything you have to a seed, right? I want you to think of three things. I'm almost closing. Think of your time, your talent, and your treasures. Two things you can do with seeds. What can you do? Eat them or plant them. When you plant a seed, there's an inherent risk involved. Do you know there's no risk in eating seed? This it's poisonous. There's the risk in planting. Why? Because the moment you plant, you remove the ability to eat it for food. Planting requires faith. Eating doesn't. I came across this story a couple months ago. History tells us that a lot of food farmers in Oklahoma in the late 1930s, they faced a harrowing. Difficult choice. During the 1920s, a lot of these farmers had left their factory jobs in the Northeast to go to the American Midwest. But in 1931, y'all remember the Dust Bowl? It didn't rain in Oklahoma for nine years. 1931, this huge decade-long drought commenced. 1939, there's only a few farmers left in Oklahoma. Many of them had enough grain just to feed themselves for another year. They had 12 months of grain left. It was the fall, and because if no rains came, they had a choice. They were to plant six months of their grain and eat the other six months, and at the end of the six months, if the six months that they had planted doesn't come up, they're dead. And they hadn't seen rain in nine years. Do you know what they did? Less than 20% of them did that. The rest of them ate them there was 20% of the farmers who planted the six months and ate off the other six months. God sent rains that fed those people unlike any harvest they'd ever seen. And let me tell you what God does with you. He does you the exact same way. He puts you at the point of no return and he gives you 12 months. And he says, you're gonna give me six and trust me with the other multiplication of six? This is what God does. This is what God does. This is how he tests us. This is our faith test. He, He puts it in front of us. And throughout your life, God will put you in that situation. I think during this Multiply series, God's gonna call some of you to give, not just financial, you're gonna give over a time and sacrifice in ways that are gonna scare you. You say, Craig, it's not that big. What's well, big to you, it's big to me. And the question God wants to ask you this series is, do you believe God can multiply what you give to him, both taking care of you and blessing the world at the same time? Do you believe that? C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest authors, he said the only safe rule when it comes to generosity is give until it scares you, because only then do you know that you're given by faith. If you don't give until it scares you, you're given by convenience. But when you give when it scares you, then you're giving by faith. You're giving by faith, folks. You're giving by faith. If you want a safe life, I'm not talking to you. But if you want a life that multiplies and accounts for eternal significance, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. The only way to follow Jesus is a total abandon. You go up on a mountain called Mowbray Mountain where my dad grew up. My parents are here today. Mowbray Mountain in Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. You get up to the top of the mountain, there's something called Mont Lake. It's this big hole that they claim the miners dug out all the way to the bottom. And it's got water in the bottom. You can jump from an 80-foot cliff. You can jump from a 150-foot cliff. You got to pull off the road, walk behind somebody's house, and boom, the ground opens up and you got this big Mont Lake. I remember in high school, I went there between basketball games at basketball camp. And we went up there. And we had a guy, a friend a guy named Brian Arnold. He was crazy. He did a basketball. Flip off of the top of this dock that uh, 150 feet. He did it. And, 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 and this 80-foot cliff, it was kind of crazy because right at the 80-foot cliff, right below your rocks. Now, if you took the broad jump, the distance between you to get to the, past those rocks, you couldn't do. So you couldn't broad jump it. Like, they were right below you. But here's the way you could do it. You would always land in the pool if you backed up and you took off sprinting and you left off the rock because you were dropping so far, 80 feet, that the trajectory would give you multiplied distance. So the only way you could make it into the water is if you, with total abandon, took off running. That's exactly how God's faith works. You cannot do it by broad jumping. You cannot stand on the end and broad jump. You must back up, and you must take off sprinting, and you must leap. And when you leap, God will take care of you. You will cover more distance than you ever thought you could cover, but it takes total abandonment. You cannot follow Jesus into what God has for you of multiplication by you playing it safe. If you hedge your bets, you hit the rock and die. You can't hedge your bets following this Jesus. He do not allow it. There's no hedging bets. It's saying, God, I abandon. I abandon. Thirdly and finally, I'm going to ask the band to come. Confidence to risk for God comes from comprehending the commitment of God. Confidence to risk for God comes only from comprehending the commitment of God. You say, Craig, how do we know that Abraham finally got this? Because Genesis chapter two, 20, 22 says he sacrificed his son. I'm not going to go there, we'll go there in a few weeks. How did Abraham finally get the confidence? I think I know how. Can I show you? Can I show you real quick? I think I know how he got the confidence. Turn with me real quick. After being the guy who threw his wife under the bus, go to Genesis 15, three with me. This is where I think it turned for Abram. This is where I think it turned. I think this is where he said, you know what, God, I can follow you because you've committed yourself to me. Abram's one of his, in his one of his times of doubt again and God reappears, reappears to him. Look what he says. He says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. And your exceeding great reward, Abram says, Woo, thanks God, thanks so much. You taught me lyrics to a new worship song. We'll sing it at DP this Sunday. No. Abram gets rude to God and he offends God. I'm your exceedingly sh- great reward and your shield. And look what Abram says. Behold, you've given me no child. Don't give me this talk, God. You ain't not give me no kid. He said, I'm the father of the faith and you ain't give me no kids. What do you call that? D-O-U-B-T, doubt. So God takes him outside, shows him the star, which is why our background on our series looks that way. He shows him the stars and he says, as numerous as the stars are, so shall your offspring be. And then occurs that famous verse in the Bible where Paul says how we get saved. You ready? Genesis 15, six, this is how Paul says we get saved. He quotes in Romans. And he said, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as... Righteousness. People say, Craig, how are people saved in the Old Testament? The same way as people are saved in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they believe God would keep his promise to send a Messiah and guarantee their future. In the New Testament, we believe God has kept the promise. The only difference is they look forward. We look backward. The object is the same. It's Jesus. It's just different directions. We're looking at to Jesus. We're looking back at Jesus. This is it. That's all it is. It's the same way. They're saved the same way. Accredited to God as righteousness. And Abraham believed God. Way to go, Abraham. But look, verse 8. He doubts again, y'all. Right after he just told him you'd be saved, as he said, what? How will I know? God, Abraham gives me hope. He's doubting two things here, church. He's first doubting one, God, can I trust you? It's been decades. Are you going to keep your word? And God, can I trust me? I've proven unreliable. Every doubt in your life comes down to two parts. God, can I trust you? And God, can I trust me? It's the center of every doubt you have. Here's God's answer in Genesis 15, 9 and 10. You ready? I can't read it for you. I'm going to summarize it. it. says, you want to know whether or not I'll keep my promise to you, Abram? All right, bring me five animals. You ready? I want a cow. I want a goat. I want a ram. I want a turtle dove. And I want a pigeon. Cut them in half. Put them on either side of the ditch. Let the ditch get full of blood. Make a little river of blood in the middle. And you're like, what? We live in a written age, don't we? When we get a guarantee, when we want to get a guarantee, we ask for a written contract. I a contractor quotes me a price to work on my house. I asked for it in writing. So if he comes back and says, No, it's a different price, I say, Bro, you signed the dotted line. You painted my house for this. You charge me for this. Well, in their day to sign a set of signing contract, they cut a few animals open, walked through the river of blood so that it splashed up on the robes, saying, if you don't keep your end of the covenant or mine, uh, you're gonna be cut. You're gonna die. And you looked at the robes and you saw that blood was gonna happen. It's called a covenant. In fact, the word Covenant means to cut, berith in Hebrew. To cut a covenant. We call write a contract. They call it cut a covenant. What's happening, Craig? We're supposed to make a covenant sundown, so read verse 12 with me. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, in a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. Don't have time to go there, but that's the exact same words used for God on Mount Sinai. Pass between the pieces. So who's, who's passing between the pieces? God. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Wait. So God went through the pieces? Yep. Who didn't pass through the pieces? Who didn't pass through the pieces? Abram. In those days, church, if a king made a covenant with a servant, the servant walked through a because it was assumed the king would keep up his end of the deal. The king would never even have to walk. This is the only covenant in recorded history where the servant goes to sleep and the king walks through the blood. The meaning is clear. God says, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, I'll pay for it with my blood. If you don't keep up your end of the deal, I'll pay for it with my blood. I'll take care of your end of the deal. I'll take care of my end of the deal. You just go to sleep. You just lay off in the ground there because I am the God who keeps my promises to a thousand generations the picture's clear here folks the gospels before us just like Abram fell into a deep sleep we were in deep sleep of sin the gospels tell us that when Christ died what descended over the earth darkness what happened here darkness Jesus's blood flowed out of his side like a river the Bible says was God's son dying because he hadn't kept up his end of the bargain no, God's son was dying because we hadn't kept up our end of the bargain. And God said, I'll take responsibility for both parties. <laughs> and this, my friends, is where Abraham gets the faith to face Genesis 22 and say, I'll, I'll sacrifice. Listen to me, write this down. True confidence doesn't come from within us. It comes from what was done for us. I want to say it again true confidence doesn't come from within us it it comes from what was done for us you can say it this way courage is not a character quality it's a consideration of God's commitment shown to us at Calvary courage comes when we watch how God committed do you see how comforting this is Bethany God's more committed to my family than I am so I don't have to worry oh uh, did I miss that did I not do that with Knox dear God he's more committed to it than me Sometimes I think we think in the church we have to get together and then we have to pray that God would bless it. Folks, I don't have to pray that God blesses it. God's invited me to be a part. He's more committed to this church than I am. I didn't die for this church. I didn't blow my blood for this church. But sometimes I get so convicted because I'm like, God, just take what we're doing and just bless it and just do, just multiply. And God's like, it's mine. I want to multiply it. I'm just asking you to surrender. That's all I'm asking you to do. I, I, I paid my blood for these people. You didn't pay your blood for these people. God's more committed to your children than you are. God's more committed to your career than you are. God's more committed to you. When I stay and mess up, he stays committed. That's why he says the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again. Gets back up again. Did you fall in your marriage? Get back up again. Did you fall into porn? Get back up again. Did you fall into a bad relationship? Get back up again. Folks, if you followed somebody seven times, can you imagine? Righteous man falls seven times. First time he falls, you're like... <laughs> You follow him again. He falls second time. You're like, let me get my phone out and put this on Instagram. Third time he falls, you're like, we're going to put this on YouTube. And it, can you imagine? He falls fourth time. You get in, you're like, we're going to send this to all my friends. Fifth time, now you're starting to feel sorry for the dude. He's falling five times. Sixth time, you're calling the ambulance. Seventh time, you're wondering if he's going to be resuscitated. And the Bible says... All of us will fall seven times, and yet we get back up. Righteousness is not about not falling. It's about the declaration that God will keep up his end of the deal, that God is faithful to keep his end of the deal. And no matter how many times I fall, God resuscitates, God renews, God strengthens. (laughs) Oh, and he wants to multiply. So I want you to bow your heads with me. Where in your life right now are you holding on to barriers that are not allowing you to follow and trust him? To be multiplied. That's a simple question, uh, simple in statement, but complex in answer. Where is it that you've built up barriers? And the barriers are keeping you from following and truly trusting, fully obey What I'm going to do right now is this team's going to sing, and I'm just going to give you an opportunity to meet with the Lord yourself. To just say, God, again, afreshly, I surrender to you can you pray this prayer with us over the next five weeks? God, here I am. Would you multiply my life? I'm ready to follow you. God, God multiply my life. I'm ready to follow you. Would you stand with me all across this room? Right now, just in your own time. Take your heart and the disposition of your heart and just surrender and bow to Him. So often we bow with our knees, but it's a whole lot easier to bow our knees than it is to bow our heart. To say, Lord, I bow my heart before you. I surrender fully to you. And I want follow you I want you to multiply my life for your kingdom with your eyes closed you're making those statements there will be people in eternity that will point out from that great heavenly mansion and they'll scream bloody murder at you raise their voice and say thank you for willing to be multiplied thank you for willing to be give it all up to surrender everything and follow because I'm here today because of your obedience Oh, God, today would you give us the ability to see with far sight, not no nearsightedness, but to see in the future, to see what you're calling us to, to see how, God, you want to multiply our lives individually and in our church corporately. Do you have a plan for this great city? And we're a part of that plan. You called us to plant here. You called us to engage here, to serve to live, to work, to play here. Again, thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at www.dwellingplacemovement.org.